Lord, we do thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, the truth that is in your word, Lord. The expectation that is in your word. Lord, the realization, the revelation, Lord. Lord, these are people that are just like us. They have our same fears, our same weaknesses. And Lord, you are so, so great. You are so good. Lord, you are constantly condescending to us. You are constantly listening to us. You are constantly delivering us and rescuing us, even from ourselves. And Lord, we just want to thank you for your goodness. Lord, I pray that you would impress and press on every woman's heart today how much you love her and that you are a God who is with her and is for her and will rescue her out of every single situation because you are the God who is the deliverer. You are the God whose very name says, I am salvation. So Lord, may we take your banner um, um, upon ourselves, Lord Jesus, and Lord, in your love, may we be delivered from fear in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, I just feel like I have, I don't know if it's divine Alzheimer's. I don't know. I think that, you know, sometimes God wants to prove himself to us in unexpected ways. Don't you think so? Like, this is not the way that I would show Cheryl Broderson that I am really in charge of everything and she has no power. But the Christmas Eve, I had all these responsibilities. I had him invited all these people over because my first Christmas with my dad, I didn't want it to look like anything was missing. So I was trying to fill everything. And my, my two daughters said, you know what? We don't even want to be in California. It, it hurts too much. So they were in New York. So now I, I've got the deficit of, you know, I'm not going to have my dad this Christmas and I'm not going to have my daughters with me. So I'm just going to I'm just going to ask anybody who doesn't have any place to go to come over to my house, and I'm just going to make a lot of food and keep myself distracted. And so um, I volunteered to also make the food for, you know, my, my mom's house. Yeah, I'll make all the food. Just please, just keep me busy. And so on Christmas Eve um, day, I was making the food, making my grandma's famous cinnamon rolls, and I had the mixer going, and I bought myself for Christmas on eBay. I bid and I won um, one of those vacuums that just vacuums by itself. And so I had turned on the vacuum that, I'm one of those people that actually likes vacuums uh, for presents because Brian doesn't think that way. And so we buy ourselves our own Christmas presents and then just say, don't you just love what you got, you know? <laughs> so I have my vacuum. It was an early Christmas present to myself from Brian, from me. And so I have it going, and I have the mixer going, and I thought, oh my goodness, okay, I've got 15 minutes to blow dry my hair. So I run upstairs, and I blow my hair dry with my styling brush, and I, and you know, that, that two-handle, that's hard for me, okay? That's an art form that I still haven't captured, but anyway, I come downstairs, and my vacuum's like throwing these bubbles around my kitchen, and I realize I flooded my kitchen. I absolutely flooded my kitchen. It's like two inches deep in water. And I realized that I have left the sink running. Yeah, yeah. The sink running the entire, with hot water. And there's bubbles everywhere. So I get every beach towel that I own out of the kitchen, um, out of the laundry room. I get every beach towel. Then I have to get every bath towel that I own. So you know what that means, laundry. And I'm trying to clean this up. And I've already bugged Brian so much that day. He's like, Cheryl, you've got to give me a break. I need to work. Do not call me. 
but I had to call him, even though it was, I don't know, the fifth time. I call him up and I said, Brian, I know you told me to quit calling you, but I flooded the kitchen and I cannot move the refrigerator. And he said, I'll be right home. So he comes home and he's moving the refrigerator. He's so much like my dad. Oh my, oh my, oh my. And I'm not in trouble. He's not saying, who could you do this? It's just like, oh my, we've got a problem. I love that one flesh thing. You know, I'm not his problem. We are a problem together. So he calls some guys in the church. These men are so precious. I called them my Christmas angels. They come over and they've got the shot vacs because when you were stepping on the boards in my kitchen, the suds were coming up still, like even after I dried everything off. Uh, and so they're like, Cheryl, we have to put blowers in your kitchen and you cannot be in this kitchen for the next 24 hours. And I'm just going, okay, I'm glad I got the dough done for this, you know, the roles, that's it. And so it was like, God was saying like, you're fired. You're, you're dismissed. I'm going to do this, not you. And it was totally not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And the next day, all the food got done. I don't know how God does it, but he did it. And there was enough food. So, okay, that's absent-minded. Monday, there's the missions conference. Brian had put me down for three speaking engagements. I'm so gutted. I'm so empty. I am so like not here, right? I know I'm brain dead. But Brian doesn't realize that yet. I, I thought I gave him enough proof with the flooding, but I didn't. So I have to give him more proof. So I said to Brian, look, please. Um, I, I gave my main session to Jasmine, who, who rocked it. Um, I gave my workshop to Joni, who rocked it. And the question and answer was with missionaries who should have been doing it in the first place. So it was like amazing. So I totally ditched the first day of the missions conference. And because I needed to study and I was at home. So I just said, Brian, all I want to do is be alone with Jesus all day. I just need my wonderful counselor. I just need to be alone. So I'm alone with Jesus all day Monday, you know, and I, I go to bed Monday night. I'm alone in my house. So this is, this is what I do. I have an ironing board on the back of the door and, you know, I put it down so that all I want is that the burglar has to make a lot of noise coming in my room. So I put my trash can in front of it. I put a suitcase in front of it. I put just a whole bunch of stuff that would rattle and make a lot of noise in front of my door to my bedroom. And I, of course, I locked the door, but, you know. And then I have this little thing that I can trigger. It looks like a key ring, key alarm for a car, but it's not. It's the alarm for the house. And so I can hit that panic button, you know, let him just rattle, let him rattle my ironing board. And I know and the panic thing is going on. Plus, I have my cell phone. It's already 911. Just all I have to do is, yeah. And so there I am. I go to sleep. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to being alone at night, I'm more afraid of being afraid than I am of a burglar, really, because I just don't want my adrenaline going and to stay up all night. All I want to do is be able to be at peace and go to sleep all night, which I did. I went, slept all night. It was great. So the next day, I get up. I have my morning alone with Jesus. We study. You know, I, I do the Bible study. I, I take a shower. I, I blew my hair dry, but that time it was safe. I, it was just great. So about 1230, I think I'm going to go get the mail. I go to get the mail and I turn around. I've left the garage door open all night long, just totally up. Like burglars are welcome here. Come take anything you want. It's worse. My car was in the garage with the doors unlocked with my purse sitting on the front seat. By the way, help yourself, you know? And, you know, I just, I felt the spirit of the Lord say, Cheryl, who is protecting you? Obviously, you can't protect yourself. <laughs> Who's rescuing you? 
You know, who's got your back, Cheryl? Who? You know, you're the woman who leaves the water running and breaks her Christmas present. It, it won't work anymore, that vacuum. It did say, do not get this wet. But the, the thing is, is like, the, except the Lord keep the city, the watchman wakes in vain. Our Lord loves us so much. I was reading in Zechariah chapter seven the other day on God was talking about how zealous his love is for us. And I know we talk about the greatness, you know, your love is greater um, than the oceans, greater. And yes, we know it's all around us and we know it's great, but you know what we lose sight of? The intensity, the intensity of his love. This morning I was reading John chapter 21 and John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. And I thought, John, I'm so proud of that confidence that you have. But the Lord began to speak to me that John was one of 12. And he didn't say, one of the 12 that Jesus loves. One of the 11 good ones that Jesus loves. You know, not Judas. He, he just takes this to himself. And yet I know that John was aware that Jesus loved Peter and Jesus loved James. But he knew the love and the intensity of Jesus for himself. And this is why. Because Jesus' love is so personable, so intimate, so rich, that we are to feel at times as if we were only children because of the greatness of his love. So in that vein, Though we are greatly loved, we are greatly opposed, aren't we? We do have opposition, and it's a part of the Christian life. I know in your homework this week, there was the question, why opposition? We, could, we should have had the question, like, why is opposition good for you? Because we don't think it's good for us. But there, it's, so, it's so good for us, because we tend to get so independent, don't we? We tend to just... It's all right, Lord, I'll take the next mile and you can have the one after that. And then what does the Lord do? He leaves you to yourself and you flood your kitchen and leave your purse on the front seat of an unlocked car with the garage wide open to show us that we need him so desperately. Opposition also, it, it, it allows us to see the hand of God in our lives and being for us. Have you experienced opposition? The answer, of course, is yes. We've all experienced opposition. How do you handle it? Do you take it personally? I think we all do, don't we? We're just like, I think that the president doesn't like me. You know, there's this new kind of health care, and it's just not working out for me. It raised my premiums. You know, we take everything so personally as a personal affront. We see opposition as, Lord, what did I do wrong? Or sometimes we draw back from whatever we're doing because we're just like, oh, you know, there's opposition. Okay, I'm gonna stop because there's opposition. How many people give up the minute there's opposition? I think about in Haggai, we read about how the people had stopped building the temple. Why? Because all of a sudden there's opposition. And for 16 years, they stopped building the temple of God just because of opposition. 
until Haggai and Zechariah rose up and said, you're to continue to build the temple. God is with you. His presence is with you. He's going to build this temple. He's going to do it himself if you'll just put your hand to the trowel. Sometimes we, we, we just, we resign. We give in to the opposition. We're just like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the other side. We find that in the book of Samuel. We find that these Israelites, because the Philistines were so strong and constantly in opposition, we're told that many of the Israelites begin to fight on the side of the Philistines instead of fighting for Israel. We're told in those days that the people of Israel didn't have weapons and the Philistines did. And so they're like, hey, you join the army, you get a weapon, and all you have to do is kill Israelites. And so they join the opposition. And sometimes that happens. But that's not the right reaction to opposition. Opposition happens when God is dynamically working. That's when you're going to know you're in the right place doing the right thing when there is opposition. Satan means it for evil, to discourage, to sabotage, and to even stop God's work. But God in his infinite wisdom actually uses opposition to accomplish his greater purposes. Again, we begin to rely on God and him alone. It showcases God's power because we can't do anything. There's opposition, but God can still work. As Paul said in Timothy, I might be chained, but the word of God is not chained. It exposes the enemy. Opposition shows you who the enemy is, who it is, who is truly in opposition to God and his work. And not only that, God uses that opposition to defeat the enemy. Anyone who is being used by God will face opposition. Paul said all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's not a word of promise that I like, but it's a word of promise that is true. I think one of the issues with opposition that makes it so difficult besides its own essence and personality, the fact that opposition is opposition, means it's opposed, it's against you. But one of the other difficulties is that it arises from unexpected places. Many times it's from other believers. It's the church itself. Somebody once called (laughs) well-intended dragons. You know, and I think that's only because they're fire breathing. But there are those times where you would think, this person is going to be for me. The, the church, it should first see the work of God and embrace it, be so excited that people are being saved. And then it comes sometimes from political powers, from the very place that you live, the place that you thought you were flying under the radar, and suddenly you're noticed and you're being scrutinized. But what is the best way to react to opposition? Again, it's not to hide from it. It's not to stop or resign to it. But instead, we can learn from Peter in these chapters, Acts 11 and 12, four things to do when we face opposition. First, give God the glory. Secondly, rest in God. Three, Continue to follow God's leading and four, leave 
everything with God. As we go through, I'm going to explain a little bit more what I mean. But Peter faced opposition. And there were two sources of opposition, as we see in chapter 11. You've got the opposition of the brethren in Jerusalem. Talk about unexpected opposition. In chapter 12, you've got the official or the government opposition to the work that God was doing in Peter's life. Now, opposition should not, in a perfect world, ever come from Christians. But it does. It just does. It's a fact of life. I've, I've had young girls, you know, join the ministry and had like a honeymoon period and then all of a sudden go, there's opposition. Yes, there's opposition, but it's from Christians. They should not act like that. Yes, they, they do though, because they're humans. You know, I know I've been in opposition. I've been on the wrong side before. I, I you know, maybe because the person singing was so cute. You know, I've been like, well, her voice isn't that good. Okay, so it's fantastic. Okay, but maybe, maybe, you know, she has ugly toenails. I don't know. You know, there are times that you're just like, no, I don't want this person to be perfect because maybe my place will be taken away. We all do that. We're women. We're faulted. We're human. And sometimes our greatest opposition is from the church itself or from our friends or the, the people that we know. You know, when you talk, everyone doesn't go, oh, wait, stop. It's a word from the Lord. Let her speak. Yeah, most of the time they're like, you know, you see it in their face, like, no, really, really, this is the Lord. No, no, I'm telling you. We sometimes can be slow, or our friends can be slow to get it. And those people that you would expect to be the most supportive aren't always the most supportive. Now, it should have been the brethren in Jerusalem that were the most supportive of what was going on in Peter's life and how God was using Peter. They should have been the first to embrace and, in, and rejoice over what God was doing through Peter. Why? Because they knew Peter. They knew him personally. They knew him as one of the heads of the church. They knew him as the disciple who had spent three years with Jesus. Peter intimately knew Jesus, and they knew Peter intimately knew Jesus. It was Peter that Jesus sought out, that he said to the women, tell Peter I'm risen from the dead. It was Peter that Jesus reinstated on the banks of the Galilee. Peter, do you love me? It was Peter that saw the Lord transfigured. It was Peter that was one of the first at the empty tomb. It was Peter that stood up on the day of Pentecost and boldly preached the gospel and 3,000 were saved. It was Peter who had been arrested and said, it is better to obey God than men. It was Peter who looked at the lame man at the gate beautiful and perceived that he had the faith to be healed and said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. He was the first disciple after the resurrection, to perform a miracle in Jesus' name. They should have believed in Peter because they knew him. He was their friend. He was one of them. We know with Peter, he was also not afraid to rebuke someone who was out of line because he rebuked Simon the sorcerer in Samaria. Why, everybody else is just so proud that a sorcerer got saved. 
Peter's like, hey, I perceive in you the gall of bitterness. I'm not going for this. You better repent. He called him out. This was Peter. And these men should have trusted Peter as a disciple of Jesus. But we're told that when the leadership in Jerusalem heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God, instead of being excited, they were angry, they were contentious, and they were ready to go to war over this. A misunderstanding of the scripture and prejudice in those in Jerusalem kept them from rejoicing. Shouldn't it have been these disciples that rejoiced the first why? Because the gospel was preached and people's lives were changed? Shouldn't it have been these people who had the greatest understanding of the scripture and seen that the whole Old Testament is riddled with promises about the Gentiles being saved and coming to salvation, especially under the new covenant that God would raise up? These men should have been the first to embrace because one, they knew Peter. Two, because they were studying the scriptures. Three, because they claimed to know God and they had walked with Jesus. They should have known. But instead, these men are poised with a, for a fight. They are angry. They're accusatory. And they have made their supposition upon rumors. I want to just go on record as saying assumption and presumption are the evil twins of the church. Most of my fights with Brian are because one or the other of us have assumed or presumed. We've assumed that we know what the other one is thinking and we've presumed that their intentions are something other than they are. I know Brian would go surfing sometimes and he would be gone an extra hour and he'd come back and he'd be like, and I'd be like, what is your problem? Well, I just know that you're going to be mad at me because I went surfing for the extra hour. And I'm like, I am not mad. I actually needed that extra hour. So you can just drop the attitude. Really? You're okay? Yeah. But you know, and I do the same thing. Well, I knew that you were staying in this lane as far from the place you're supposed to turn right just to drive me crazy. And he says, you think I make it a habit to try to drive you crazy? I'm not. Those are your brothers. I'm here to, to preserve your sanity. Really? But you know, sometimes we just assume that they're doing what they're doing. You know, like, you want me to go crazy? It's okay, I can do that all by myself. <laughs> but assumption and presumption are very dangerous. Because assumption says, I know your motives. Presumption says, I know, I know what you're gonna do. We cannot assume or presume. Very dangerous things to do. They met with Peter and were told that those of the circumcision, those who were keeping the law but were believers in Jesus, contended with him. This word contended is diacrinal and it means to have a hostile dispute. This is not a nice little meeting like, let's just talk it out. What was going on? No, this is like, what in the world do you think you're doing? Going to Gentiles and we heard, now it gets accusatory, you went into their house and you ate with them. Now it's getting really bad. Peter, you became one. You associated with a Roman, with a Roman centurion. You associated with the oppressors of the Jewish people. What? were you doing? 
I love Peter's response because this is point number one. And what I put in my notes, and, and I changed it to give God the glory, but originally it was blame it on God. Blame it on God. You see, Peter does not defend himself. Well, I was feeling really spiritual that day. He doesn't do any of that. He simply tells the story. You see, one of our first reactions often is self-defense. You guys, what is wrong with you? You should be my friends. You should believe in me. Didn't I walk with Jesus? Peter does not rehearse his history with Jesus or how close he is to Jesus. Instead, he's like, hey, I'm just going to tell you what happened, and you can judge for yourself. Here's the scenario, and this is what God did. And so Peter does not quarrel with them, as it says in 2 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. And that's exactly what Peter does with those who are in opposition. He will not quarrel. I'm not going to fight with you. I'm just going to tell you what happened. Peter is not put off by their accusations. He's not put off by their opposition. He's not like, What's wrong with you? I thought you were my brethren. I thought you were believers. Don't you remember the day of Pentecost? Why aren't you receiving it? What's your problem? You're not growing enough in the Lord. So he's neither defensive nor accusatory. He's not judging. He's not presuming or assuming about them. He is not quarreling. Have you realized that quarreling never works? Once it turns into a quarrel, it's over. You've lost. Because, you know... Every time there's a quarrel, pride joins in. It goes, wow, quarrel, I love these things. Let me play. You know, years ago, Brian and I were in a fight. It was the only one we've ever had. No. (laughs) But I remember um, I was washing dishes, and obviously I don't remember what it was about because I can't remember most of what it was about. And I was getting more and more upset. And I, I had the washcloth. I was washing dishes. And all of a sudden, I got so upset, I threw the washcloth at him. And it hit him like this. And he just looked at me as it slid off his face. And he had a cup of water, and he went like this. And I went, oh, yeah. So I picked up a bowl with water, and I went like that. And then he picked up something else and threw it back. It's in our kitchen. And my son, Char, comes running and going, I love these things. A water fight. Can I do this too? (laughs) And then we realized, you know, how ridiculous. But that's what I'm saying about a quarrel. Pride comes and says, I love these things. Don't give in. Not you either. Let's keep this going. Because once it turns into a quarrel, it's like... And nobody's going to stop and go, Oh, I see your point. You're so nice. And Peter's like, we're not taking it to this level. You know, it only takes one person to stop a quarrel. That's what it says in Proverbs. Stop contention before it starts. Because once contention starts, it's like my sink that overflowed and flooded the kitchen. It says it's like a tap that you can't turn off. That's what happens with quarreling, contention. We don't want to go there. It only takes one person to stop it. Peter says this when he writes his first epistle, 
chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that is the demeanor that Peter takes on as he simply tells the story as it happened. He doesn't get in the way. He doesn't take credit for it. He doesn't talk about himself. He gives it all to God. He says, God gave me a vision. God sent men from Cornelius' house. God spoke to Cornelius through an angel. God directed me to go with them. God anointed these Gentiles with his spirit. God pronounced them clean. God reminded me of Jesus' words. If therefore God gave them the same spirit as he gave us, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that could withstand God? God, God did it. This is God. It's almost as Peter saying, okay, anyone who wants to withstand God, go ahead, stand up, throw the first stone. You want to you withstand God? I'm not going to withstand God. But if you want to, go ahead, keep accusing, keep this coming. But I'm not going to stand in God's way. Peter says, I'm not in a position to withstand the work of God. I am his servant, and I was only doing what I was told. Jesus said, in speaking of faith, because I think we misunderstand the operation of faith. He said, this is the way faith works. It works like a servant who is working in his master's field. And when the servant comes in, the master says to the servant, change and make me dinner. And when the servant has made the meal and the servant has worked in the field, he says, I am just an unworthy servant doing what my master asked. You see, God does all the work. He owns the field. He owns the food that is put together. And we get to work in his field and use his supplies. And we get to serve him. That's what faith does. That's the operation of faith. And when it's glorified, when the field bears fruit, when the table serves delicious food, it's all about what God has done. But the opposition is not over for Peter. Satan lost round one, but he is not finished. Remember, it was Peter that Satan requested by name in order to sift like wheat in Luke chapter 22. It is Peter who is being used by God to extend the gospel to the Gentiles and consequently the whole world. At this point, James, one of the close friends of Peter, we know that James John and Peter were in the inner circle with Jesus. They were the three that were taken up into the Mount of Transfiguration. They were the three that were taken into Jairus' house to see the miracle firsthand that Jesus was going to do. They were the ones that were closest to Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. It was Peter, James, and John. And James is taken by Herod, and he is killed by the sword. Now, this must have been just such a blow to the church because it's church leadership. It's somebody who'd spent such close proximity to Jesus. I mean, Stephen was just somebody who was chosen, ordained by the Holy Spirit, but he hadn't been in leadership. He had been one of the servants in uh, to the leadership. But now this is somebody very close. And I think that sometimes we think, again, that we should have a divine immunity to opposition. 
that if we're doing the will of God, nothing evil, nothing bad should happen to us. But that's not truth. That's not reality. And here, one of the greatest leaders in the church is arrested by Herod, and he's killed by the sword. This is a good friend of Peter's. I mean, this could have been something to make Peter say, well, you know, maybe I'll tone down the message so much. I didn't want Herod Agrippa to notice us. At this point, Herod is encouraged because the religious leadership in the temple is very excited about what Herod Agrippa has done. Now, Herod Agrippa I was a very, very ambitious king. He was very political and he was very evil. He was probably as ambitious as his great-grandfather, Herod the Great. We're told that he had lied and slandered his half-brother and worked to have him banished. That was Herod Antipas, then seized his territory. Um, you can read that in um, history. He also had been incarcerated for time in Rome but was freed when his friend Caligula became the emperor. He had lived such a wanton life in Rome that he incurred many, many deaths. And so he comes back to Israel and he wants to curry the favor of the Jews. This is so important to him. We're told that of all the Herods, this Herod was the most popular of any of the reigning Herods. His mother was a Jewish, a Jewess, which made him um, popular with the Jewish people. And so he's, he's encouraged when the leadership, the religious leadership, the high priest, these people in important places are favoring him for this. So he arrests Peter and he has plans after Passover to put Peter to death. Peter is arrested and he's got 16 um, soldiers guarding him, or four squads of soldiers. Each squad had four soldiers. So he's got armed guard. I mean, here's Peter the fisherman. Never killed anybody. Once he did chop off someone's ear. But he's got all these soldiers. This is a dangerous person because he's got the gospel of Jesus Christ. Watch out for Peter. Be careful about Peter. He's put in a prison He's put behind bars and guards and he's given shackles to wear just so he doesn't escape. He's confined, locked in, and has fortified gates against him. How does Peter react to this opposition? How would you react to this opposition? Would you would you be so full of anxiety when you don't know what your future holds? Would you be up all night? Would you be fidgeting? What would you do? I love what Peter does and how he reacts. He sleeps. He sleeps. I'm sorry, is that so much like a man? He sleeps. He is able to rest. He's in a totally uncomfortable scenario. He, he, he can sleep with chains on and guards next to him. And the scenario is scary as well, and he's still sleeping. His life could be taken at any time. He only has to make one guard angry. He only has to say the wrong thing to the wrong person, and his life is over. 
or he might be put up for public execution. This is the guy that was so afraid he denied Jesus three times in order to save his life. And now here he is in a dire situation and he's sleeping. He's not resting in the circumstances, but he's resting in God, which is our second point, how to handle opposition. The first is give God the glory or blame it on God. Just tell what God is doing. The second thing is to rest in the Lord. Peter does not rest in his estate and his welfare because he knows they're not in the hands of the mercurial Herod, but in the hands of his dear friend, God incarnate, Jesus. Jesus, who he walked with for three years. Jesus, who sought him out again on the shore of Galilee. That's who's holding him and his future. Jesus, who said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in me believe in my father for in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you into myself that where I am, you may also be. Peter's resting because he knows he's in a win-win situation. If he dies, he's going to be with Jesus in that place that was prepared for him. And if he lives, it's going to be totally divine and for the glory of God. Jesus had warned him about times like this, but Jesus had also promised him his peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Peter, and I believe he's recounting this situation in his first epistle, chapter four, verse 19, when he says, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God, in other words, he's saying sometimes suffering is because of the will of God. Commit their souls to him in doing good. That God has got good even in this situation. Commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So now what happens is almost comical. Peter is so at rest that even though this angel comes to a cell and we're told the cell is flooded with light, Peter is still sleeping. So what does the angel have to do? He has to strike him. He has to wake him up. Why is it that waking up has to be painful at times? Why is it we just can't, we have to have something that goes, or if you're my daughter, you have to have something that rolls around the floor of your room going, getting louder and louder, and your parents have to come in, turn it off, and grab you and make you get out of bed. Peter, it's just not enough just to have his cell. He is so at rest. He's so at peace that the angel has to like slap him. Peter, wake up. I don't know if the angel did that on his own. Later had to, God said, you know, you could have just shaken him. Did you have to slap him? God, it was Peter. (laughs) I've been dying to do that since the garden. No. (laughs) Peter's chains fall off immediately. And the angel tells Peter to follow him. And Peter does not understand what is happening, but he complies, he obeys, and he follows. Point three, this is what you do in opposition. One, give God the glory. Two, rest in the Lord. But three, follow. Follow his leading. Whatever 
God tells you to do, do. And sometimes God will tell you what seems like the wrong thing to do. Because when you're arrested, you're kind of like, well, these guys are already angry with me, Lord. I don't know that I should get them any more angry. You know, there are times when we're facing opposition and we're confined that we give in to the confinement. God wants to give us a get out of jail card, but we're like, oh no, I'm just gonna stay here in this confinement. How do I get this, this chain back on? I remember when I went to England, I, uh, I, I felt the Lord tell me, have a brunch for the women in the church. So we announced a brunch for the women in the church. And I decided I was gonna make this cinnamon coffee cake that I make. And um, I think I did an egg casserole and cinnamon coffee cake. And I remember this woman coming to me, an American woman, and said, oh no, you cannot feed the British people American food. They don't like it. You have to feed them mushy peas and roast beef. And I said, well, since this thing's at 10.30 in the morning, I am not feeling mushy peas or roast beef. I have to say, I rarely am feeling mushy peas or roast beef. But especially not in the morning. I said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not gonna feed them that. I, I'm, I'm not English. I'm American. This is, this is what I do. I don't think God would have brought me here to be something that I'm not. So I'm just gonna make them my cinnamon coffee cake. And she's like, okay, I'm just gonna go with you because you're gonna be such a failure and just to comfort you when you fail. I said, okay. She said, now you know the English won't come to this brunch. They don't like brunches. They're not gonna come. And you've had it at such and such a place. They don't like this place. You know, everything I was doing, she was telling me how wrong it was. And I said, you know what? All I know is that God put this on my heart and I'm just gonna try it and see what happens. I have this other friend who's English, Sue McBride, who you met. She's like, it's a wonderful idea. Don't listen to her. She doesn't know. It's a wonderful idea. We're going to do it. God is gonna bless it. Come on, Cheryl. She even found the hotel that, you know, would rent us a room and we could bring our own food. She's like, it's, it's gonna be glorious. I'm like, okay, Sue. Because she'd always make me do things I didn't wanna do, Sue. And always encourage me to do things I was feeling kind of scared about. But I'm like, at least Sue likes me. I'm doing this. And, you know, the church was pretty small at the time. We were just starting. 21 women showed up. I was like, 21 women, yes. I was so excited. And they, guess what? They loved the coffee cake absolutely adored. Cheryl, this is gorgeous. This is just gorgeous. They loved it, and they're like, we can't believe you did this for us. And, you know, we did Bible study. We gave them a little gift. And the, the friend who came to encourage me was sitting there like, well, I, I guess it's because they're in London that it worked. You're like, okay, fine. You keep up with your mushy peas. I'm going to do cinnamon coffee cake. It's just the way things are. And then I made blueberry muffins, the, the next meeting. And it was so funny because, again, blueberry muffins, they won't understand. They won't like blueberry muffins. You shouldn't do blueberry muffins, blah, 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 blah. Okay, not only did I make blueberry muffins, but a woman hired me because she was doing a conference to make 500 blueberry muffins for her conference, which was really a stupid thing to say yes to. <laughs> and thinking back, I don't know what possessed me to say I'd love to, but mainly because that discourager was standing next to me. So I was just like, I'd love to make 500 blueberry muffins for all your English friends at your English conference that doesn't have non-Christians and they don't live in London. You know. Follow the Lord. It doesn't matter if you think your audience loves mushy peas and he tells you to make blueberry muffins. You follow the Lord. When he takes the chains off, follow the Lord. 
When he opens the prison doors, follow the Lord. When he puts the guards to sleep, follow the Lord. And that's exactly what Peter did. He's just following the leading of the Lord. That's what he did when it came to Cornelius. And when he went to Cornelius' house, he was just following the leading of the Lord. He started a pattern in his life of, I'm just going to follow the leading of the Lord and not ask questions. You see that Peter never says, where are we going? How long is it going to take to get there? What are we going to do when we get out? Who are you, by the way? And why are you making my chains fall off? In fact, I love this. Peter thinks he's in a dream. Like, whoa, this is one cool dream. As he's walking with the angel. Cool. And it's not until he's out in the street and the, the prison gates are behind him and closed. They opened at their own accord and now they're closed. That he goes, oh my goodness, this is all real. This is totally real. And then we know the rest of the story. I love it. He goes to John Mark's mother's house, John Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark. He goes to her house. He's knocking at the door. And we know these are such people of faith, praying in faith, just knowing that Peter's going to show up at the door at any moment because they're praying. It's going to happen. All that expectation, all that faith, you know, that should totally give you such, such relief, such comfort that these people are praying for Peter's release. And when he shows up at the door, they're surprised and they don't believe it. They're saying, no, it's an angel. It's a hallucination. You're crazy. And Peter has to just keep banging on the door. And then they all come to the door. And I don't know what was going on, but it must have gotten really loud because it says he motioned with his hands to be quiet. I don't know what motion he did. Like, like, what, what was that motion? It's like, I can't wait. I, I don't know why I'm going to do this, but I'm going to tell you. When videos first came out, I was a married woman. I'm old. But I remember when videos first came out, um, I wanted to see an affair to remember with Cary Grant and Deborah Carr. It's one of my favorite movies. And my favorite part is the part when Cary Grant realizes that Deborah Carr is the woman who's the invalid who bought his painting. And so when he realizes it, he goes like this against the threshold of a door. It's like Cary Grant in pain. It was like emotional turmoil. It's beautiful. And so I fast forwarded to that part of the movie, watched it, rewound, watched it, rewound, watched it, rewound. And Brian's like, what are you doing? I'm like, Brian, this is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Cary Grant, he does this so well. But you know, I kind of feel that way when I come to this story. And you know, here's Peter and he's motioning to them. I mean, if I had this on video, rewind, Peter motioning them to be quiet. Rewind, Peter motioning them to be quiet. I want to see what that looks like. You know, I, I don't know why, but I just do. How do you motion that crowd that's so excited? Like, it really is you. They're pinching him. They probably are smacking him. It's really Peter. Peter delivered him, but Peter's there because he followed the leading of the Lord. When you're opposed, you need to follow the leading of the Lord because you see, when we're opposed, you want to start following your opposers sometimes. When you're opposed, you want to start leaning into your own understanding and do what feels natural or feels secure. We have that tendency to want to protect ourselves at all costs. We want to insulate. We want to stay in the prison. We want to be ignored. We want to give in to it. It's not the time to give into it. 
It's the time to follow the leading of the Lord. All right, Lord, where are we going? What do you want to do? I'm following. I'm not asking questions. I'm just following. It's the time to give ourselves more than ever to the Lord. Peter is such an example to us on how to deal with opposition. One, give God the glory. This requires keeping yourself out of the glory, not forcing anything, but letting God lead, keeping our flesh out of it completely. Next, it's resting in God, putting your entire estate in God's hands, your reputation, your health, your ministry, your life, it's in God's hands, and that's why you can rest. Following God's leading, don't give up, don't draw back, don't withdraw, follow and go forward. But there's still one more essential in dealing with opposition, and here it is. It's leaving everything with God or leave the results with God. I used to play tennis. I'd like to think I still could. I'm not quite sure, though, about that one. But sometimes when I would play tennis, my dad had this thing. He was, he was an excellent. He could have gone pro. That's a thing that a lot of people don't know about my dad. My dad didn't have to move when he played tennis. He had all these spins and all these amazing ways of answering the ball that I played with him one time, and he says, watch, when you return this one, it's going to go over my head. And so he, he hit it to me, and I returned it, just tried to hit it really lightly. It went over his head. In fact, it went over the fence. The next one, he said, this is going to go to the right of the court. This one's going to go to the left of the court. He knew exactly by the spin he put on the ball how my return would be. I was... I was absolutely amazed. But this is what would happen. If I did a good return sometimes when I would play tennis, I'd be so anxious to see where my shot hit inside the court and where it was. Because, no offense, I'm the type of tennis player that I'm always surprised by my shot, where it does hit, and good, I got it in, the lines. I'd be so concentrated on where my shot hit that when the person answered it, I was totally not ready for the return. It's like, oh, they hit it back. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I guess that's how you play this game. It's probably why I don't play so much anymore. But this is my whole point. Sometimes when we're doing the work of the Lord, we are so concentrated on the fruit of that work that we're not ready for the return. We're not ready to hit the ball again. We're not ready to keep working. Peter did not put his mind on the fruit. He wasn't like, well, Lord, I'll follow you, but what do I get out of this? Or what's my ministry? Or what are you going to do if I do this? I mean, how many times are we negotiating with God? Well, if I obey you now, what will you do for me? What's going to be the fruit? And sometimes if we can't see fruit as the outcome of what we do for God, we won't do it. Because we don't see what fruit will come out of it. We want to know what our investment will yield before we invest. Peter doesn't do that. He just obeys the Lord. He goes to Cornelius' house. He just tells this story. Now, you see, the fruit is up to God, and he does bring fruit. What is the fruit? The fruit happens that these guys who are listening to this dialogue that's going back and forth in Jerusalem, these Christians... They, they take the gospel back to Antioch in Syria, which was the third most important city in Roman times. First was Jerusalem, second, I'm sorry, first was Rome, second was Alexandria in Egypt, and third was Antioch in Syria. 
They take the gospel to this major city. At first, they're only sharing with Jews, and then somebody has a bright idea. Hey, you know, Peter shared with Cornelius. Let's just see what happens. Let's share with the gospel with a couple Gentiles. And what happens? A mass revival. All these Gentiles become saved, and they are so gloriously saved. They are so Christ-like that they're called Christians there. Do you get it? They weren't called Christians in Jerusalem. They were called Christians in Syria. It wants these Gentile believers who begin to act like Jesus Christ. That's the fruit. And you don't see Peter going up to, to Antioch going, well, let me inspect this. You know, this is because I went to Cornelius. He's not even called to be a part of the work. This is the fruit that God's bringing. The fruit that's coming from Peter's simple obedience. Peter giving glory to God. Peter's reaction to opposition, giving glory to God, not quarreling. Resting in God, not fighting against the circumstances, not being um, anxious. Peter following whatever God says to do. And now here's the fruit. Not with Peter, but God bringing the fruit. Get your eyes off the fruit. Follow. Ours is not about the fruit. God brings the fruit. You know, sometimes it's like, God, you gave me limits. I wanted peaches. We tend to be like that, don't we? Like, oh my goodness, you get to grow apples? I'm growing lemons. It's, you know what? That's up to God. I, I think about Manoah, who's Samson's father, Samson's father and mother. They have this son. An angel tells them, you're going to have a son. God's going to use him for his glory. They're like so excited. And he starts... Um, dating Philistine women. And the Lord are like, God, you gave us a son of promise. And the Lord speaks to him and says, this is of me. Let it go. I'm in this. This is the way I'm going to bring about fruit. And this is the fruit that I'm going to bring. You cannot choose the fruit that God brings from your life. And if you've got a preoccupation with the fruit, you can't oppose opposition. You, you can't have the right reaction. So one, don't look at the fruit. But secondly, oh, we get so preoccupied with the judgment. God, what are you going to do with the people that were mean to me? You ever do that? Of course you don't. It's just me because I'm the only sinner in this room. I know I'm not alone. We get our eyes on like, when's it coming? When are they going to get theirs? Don't we? We can be so Jonah, can't we? Instead of waiting for the salvation, the change of Nineveh, we sit outside the city just waiting for it to burn. And we're so inactive because all we want to do is just wait. That's just going to come. You know, we're not doing anything. We're not following. We're not resting. We're definitely not giving God the glory. We're just waiting for judgment to fall. We just want it to come. And when we're like that, We can't be fruitful like God wants us to do. You see, God will take care of the judgment in his time and his way. Notice that every soldier who was assigned to Peter was executed. Nobody got away with holding Peter. They're like, oh no, I touched Peter. I mean, they were all, they were all in trouble. Anyone who was part of Peter's imprisonment paid for it dearly. But then Herod himself, who seemed untouchable, unreachable, that he would escape this thing unscathed. There he is in the forum at Caesarea, the amphitheater. 
And I've been there, and there he is on the stage, and the sunlight is hitting, hitting his clothes in just such a way that it's glistening, and he begins to speak. And because the people of Tyre and Sidon are dependent on him for their food, they begin to shout out and get the whole crowd excited, and they begin to shout, it is the voice of God and not a man. I mean, could things get worse? Now he's getting popular. Now he's got a bestseller. He seems like there's no end to him. Israel is accepting him. They're even calling him a Messiah. The deity that they refuse to give to Jesus Christ or acknowledge in Jesus Christ, they'll give to Herod. And what happens? An angel of the Lord comes and smites him. And as the people are looking on, it's not good enough just to knock him dead. They begin to see these worms coming out of his body. It was gruesome. It was ugly. God got even. Peter had nothing to do with it. He wasn't even in Caesarea. He was someplace else safe, going on with the work of the Lord. God will take care of the opposition. Either like those in Jerusalem, they'll have a change of heart, and they'll end up getting on the bandwagon and being part of what God is doing or God will deal with them. That's God's problem. That's God's issue. Fruit, whatever fruit he brings, that's God's. Whatever judgment he brings, that's God's. That's not our responsibility. God knows how he is going to use the opposition in our life for glory. That's not our responsibility. Ours is simply to... Give God the glory, rest in the Lord, follow his instructions, and leave everything in his hands. That's what we're to do. Observe how God used the opposition. What if Peter had not been taken to task by the leadership in Jerusalem? You know, we're just like, I had opposition. <laughs> you know, we get so mad when we have opposite. Nobody should oppose me. I'm doing the work of the Lord. You know, but observe how God used opposition. This opposition drew the attention of all the believers to the fact that Gentiles could be saved. Had there been no opposition to this, no more Gentiles might have been witnessed to. The gospel might not have gone any further than just what happened at Cornelius' house. But because of that, all believers are looking at this going, oh my goodness, what's, what's going to happen here? It drew the attention and, and thusly, you know, I love the fact we're going to get into it more next week, but Barnabas took courage in everything he saw. He went to Syria, to Antioch, to see this church that was established. He saw the grace of God upon these people. He encouraged them. And then he went and grabbed this young man who had just gotten saved. Saul had been saved a couple of years, but living in obscurity, who used to be a rabbi and a Pharisee, and he and kind of unaccepted in Jerusalem, unaccepted by a lot of the church. He goes and he grabs them and he says, these people will accept anybody. Minister to these people. And he brings Saul, who later becomes Paul, out of obscurity. In fact, Saul becomes Paul in Antioch. He lets go of his Jewish name and takes his Greek name. And he begins to minister the grace and the word of God to these people in Antioch. So what do you see? 
Because of this opposition, Paul was brought out of obscurity. The church in Syria is established. Believers were emboldened to share the gospel with Gentiles and Jew alike. Barnabas observed the grace of God and facilitated the work of God, established the work of God. Great things. What else do we see? That God made a public spectacle of the enemies of Christianity. Had Peter or the church arisen to deal with the enemy? Oh my goodness, the church would have been hated. It would have been disliked. It would have been called, you know, warmongers. But instead, the church let God deal with the opposition. And what happened? The world had to observe that God was for the church. That God was strong enough to deal with the opposition. That God would take care of the opposition. That God would deal with the Herods. God would deal with the political powers. That they didn't want to withstand God That was how it was used. The Bible is very clear that there will be opposition whenever God is at work. There will always be opposition. You cannot expect to do the work of God without opposition. If you have no opposition, I would ask you, are you really doing the work of the Lord? Is Satan really happy about what you're doing? Because if he's happy about what you're doing, you know, something might be wrong. The Bible says, beware when all men are at peace with you. You're like, that's a problem? Yes, because you're not a threat to anybody. But when you've got opposition, God is working. Peter was not exempt from opposition, and we will not be either. Persecution will arise from unexpected places, sometimes from other believers, and sometimes from the government, the place we live, the political system we're under. Whenever it rises, learn this lesson from Peter. Give God the glory. Blame it on God. Tell others about what God has done. Rest in God. Commit everything to God. Receive the peace that he is working and will work. Follow God's leading. Don't stop. Don't hide. Be ready for the next step. And leave everything to God. God is in charge of the follow-up, the clean-up, and the fruit. Don't be put off by opposition. Watch and see how God will use it for greater glory. Let's pray. Lord, you know our natural disposition towards opposition. Lord, we hate it. Lord, there's something in us that just, oh Lord, we, wanna, we want everyone to be at peace with us. We want to be friends with everybody, even skunks. Lord, we just, we want flowers along our pathway, Lord. And when it becomes hard and arduous, Lord, we tend to draw back in fear. We tend to draw back Um, Lord, and lose faith and lose heart. But Lord, we pray that you would work in us, that Lord, we would not in the least bit be put off by opposition, just like Peter wasn't put off. But Lord, that we would continue to just give you the glory. Lord, that we would rest in you, that we would follow you, and Lord, that we would leave everything in your capable hands. Lord, we thank you for this lesson from Peter. And we ask you, Lord, to apply it and engrave it on our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.